there we go. Back several years ago, our president said in a speech that America is no longer a Christian nation. He said, whatever we once were, we're no longer a Christian nation. Which is, that's odd to think about. I guess in a sense, it's true that we, we were a nation when we were first founded. We were a nation that, um, you know, we were willing to fight for our independence and defend our liberty. liberty and, and, and it wasn't because we didn't like King George, but it was because our founders agreed that God is the one to whom we owe our true allegiance and not to any king. And, and it's from God that life and liberty and all those things that we think that all people have a right to, that God has granted those things to all humanity. And that's why if a king or whatever ruler goes off the page of the Bible, we have to return and submit to the authority of God. And so that's how the, the country came about. They designed our nation based on those kinds of principles. So it was very much a Christian nation. And so the progenitors of our civil government, all the men who sat around and, and wrote documents and, and argued and, and worked to come up with a system that would work, they, they designed and built a system of law based on biblical principle. Because in all their debating and in all their working, they said that's the only system that can truly last. That's the only system that can truly provide the freedoms that we're looking for. And, and, and these days, it's popular to talk about spreading democracy across the world. You know, going to Iraq and we'll turn it into a democracy and trying to bring democracy to all these nations that have, you know, tyrannical leaders over them, that have despots and military tyrants and that kind of thing. And, and that's the pinnacle of achievement for a society in our culture. That if you get a democracy, you've reached the top and you can join the popular kids around the world. And, but democracy, it, when you really think about it, it's simply rule by majority. Whatever the, the biggest number of people say, you know, everybody gets a vote. But if you're in the minority, your vote really doesn't do much. The, the majority gets to force their will upon everybody else. And so even though you might not have a king or you might not have a military dictator telling you how that you're supposed to live, democracy can just as easily become a tyranny of the majority. So whatever the popular party is, they get to rule over you just the same way a king would. So if the majority decides that women shouldn't be allowed to speak in public and they should you know, cover their, their heads with burqas and and you know, walk ten paces behind the men or whatever it is that the society, if the majority says that, then women would have to give up their freedom as the result of a legal democratic process. A democracy can do that. And, and the genius of our founders, what made them so wise in choosing the system, that they're designing the system they did, is that they recognized that our lives and our freedom aren't provided by government. They come from God. And, and therefore, no man can arbitrarily exercise control over someone else's life. No one person can rule over another. And so no one person can rule over a country. No group of men or people can rule over a nation. And, and, that's, you know, and that good government can only be derived by the consent of the governed. That it's when the people say, we are allowing you to run the system we want of our government. And the people, the public, says, we're going to give you permission to, to have this job. And that's the only good government that you can really get. And, and they recognized, you know, so that they, they knew that government cannot morally grant or deny freedom. You know, you can force somebody to do something by gunpoint or by military or whatever it is, but you can't give and take freedom morally as a government. We own ourselves. God has given us our lives. They belong to us. So we're allowed to, you know, we, we have the right to, at least we believe this in this country, to, to travel where we want, to work however we want, to you know have a job or not have a job, to to own a home, to worship freely, you know, whatever we want to worship, we believe that we have the right to worship 
however and whenever and whatever we want to worship. And, and that we are sovereign over our own will. We get to choose the course of our lives. And we believe that we get that choice from God. That He has given us the freedom to choose how we want to live our lives. Whether that's good or bad. We get to choose you know, whether we, we live a good life or we live a bad life. And that God has granted us that freedom. And the founders understood that things like real justice and, and real freedom and real peace can only come by living in accordance with the will of the Creator. So God gave us the choice to live a good life or a bad life, but they understood that only by living a good life will we have peace and will we have prosperity and will we have freedom. So we have the choice to be moral or immoral, but it's only by living a moral life according to God's standards that we will achieve the the freedom and the liberty that He wants to give us all. And so because God created people, the, the, the highest end of people is to glorify God. Our, our greatest purpose is to show God the, the goodness in what He has made in us. That we can glorify God simply by living out the life that He's designed for us to live. And so when we love Him and when we love our neighbor, when we're preaching the Word, when we're living good lives, God is glorified because that's what He made us for. So when the machines that He made are doing what they, He made them to do, He's happy about it. Of course, we're not just machines. We're free will. He's, we've given us the choice to, to work the way He's designed us to work or not work the way He's designed us to work. So when we work the way He's designed us to work, God is glorified. And that's the, what you could say the chief end of man is to bring God glory in how we live our lives. And... And, the, and the, the founders understood this, that the only way to actually pursue happiness, because they said, you know, that's three of the, that's not all of our, right, our rights that are listed in the Declaration of Independence, but they said among them are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And they understood that the only real way to pursue real happiness is to pursue holiness. You go after holiness, and that'll bring you happiness. So they designed this constitutional republic, not a democracy. We are not a democracy. We are not a mob rule. We, they designed a constitutional republic based on the laws of God. So God said, you've got to live this way if you want a good life, if you want to be prosperous and be freedom and, and, and have a, a nation that lasts. You have to live according to God's moral precepts. So they said, we need a system upon which people will be motivated to live according to God's moral precepts. And so they designed this system of law that is a, it's, we still get to vote, we still get to decide, but we vote, our, our, all of our decisions are constrained by the Constitution. The Constitution says you're allowed to do basically whatever you want within the constraints of what God says you're allowed to do. And so they designed it they, they construct the Constitution in such a way as to protect the public, us, from the abuse of power that anyone in government might be tempted to foist upon them. So whether it's a president or a congressman or a senator or a judge or whatever, they designed a government with checks and balances so that nobody would ever have too much power and they wouldn't be able to, to steal the liberties of the people. That way, you know, that, that not one person and not, no one group of leaders, no one house, or, or you know, that kind of thing, or, or even a national majority. If the, if the one group of people, a majority, uh, you know, a democratic majority, decided that they wanted to force something on the rest of the country, if it wasn't within the bounds of the Constitution, they couldn't do it. So it was a, it's a way to constrain even a majority through this system of law. And, and, and so we were called to live by the moral directives of the Creator Himself by which our lives are governed. And so we have freedom and we have liberty within the bounds of our Creator. And they said that. We are created by God. He's the one that gives us our rights. And so in order to maintain those rights, we have to live according to His law. And that's the way the whole system was designed. So that's our nation was founded as a Christian nation. Now, they didn't want the government running the church, which is a smart thing. You don't want your government 
the way they run everything else, you'd see the way the church would go. So they didn't want a, a governmental religion. They wanted freedom to worship God apart from government. And they wanted the government to protect their right to worship God the way He's called us to do according to the Bible and not the way some majority or some king or some senate or whatever, not the way the government decides we're supposed to worship, but the way God calls us to worship. So they separated church from government in such a way that we would be free to worship God according to the Bible and not the way the government tells us to. Um, After all, who knows better how we should live than the one who created us, the one who made us and the one who made the universe in which we live. You'd think he would know pretty well how we can live in this world and get the most out of it. And, And so as most of the population and their elected leaders honored God, it was the most people were Christians. Most of the government leaders were very devoted Christians. They might have gone to different denominations, but they were very committed to Christ. Most of the people you'd meet on the street, they were all church-going, God-loving, Bible-knowing Christians. And they lived their life that way. And so as the, as the nation honored God, God richly blessed our nation. And we, were, we prospered immensely. And people had freedoms that the world had never known before. And and the rest of the world prospered because of America's freedom. We have contributed so much down through the ages to, to science and industry and medicine and technology and education. I mean, there's so many things that America, because of her freedom and prosperity, has been able to bless the rest of the world with because we designed a system based on honoring God and God gave us prosperity because of that. So, And sadly, you know, these days, you can look back in history and kind of see how the trend has gone. As many people in our society have been turning their backs on God, which is a sad thing to see, we have been losing our edge in so many of those areas in which we used to lead the world. You know, when we, we were the top of the, the pyramid when it came to education and industry and, and financial prosperity... I mean, everybody else looked to America to say, how do you guys do it? We want to do it the way you do it because you're so successful. And sadly, as we've been walking away from God, we have lost that edge. Nowadays, our leadership in in the world is moving into areas like obesity. We're number one in fat people in the world. We're number one in anxiety disorders in the world. We lead the world in incarceration rates. We have more people per capita in prison than anywhere else in the world. We we lead the world in the cost of health care. I'm sure this new law isn't helping any, but that's one of the things that we're top of the chain in. The other thing, another thing we can be proud of as being number one is cocaine use. We lead the world per capita in. I mean, we've lost all those great things that the world used to say. How do you do it? We want to do it like you do, and now the world's saying. We don't want to do it like you do because you guys have all the problems. You're leading the world in, in disaster. And it, it gives a whole new context to saying we're number one. Well, I mean, it's, it's bad things. And if that wasn't bad enough, we are so buried in debt, in government debt. I mean, truly uncountable numbers. I mean, it's numbers that just blow any person's mind how much money we are in debt how much we have to pay back to the Federal Reserve. And, 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 that's, and not just the government, but personal debt. Our country is so buried in personal debt that people have gotten used to living as slaves to the lender. We've gotten used to having a mortgage our whole lives. We've gotten used to having a car payment our whole lives. We've gotten used to taking out money, to borrowing money to buy everything. We put everything on a credit card. And that's... The whole country is buried in this debt, and which makes us slaves to our lenders. So, now thinking about all this kind of bad news, I'm not the kind of person who says America is evil and she should just be, you know, put out of her misery and forgotten. Because I think there we've got a lot of good things going for us. I think we've got a lot of residual blessings from God that He continues to, you know, pours out rain on the good and the bad. And I think God continues to take care of His. The people who he, who he calls His own. He continues to pour out blessings on this nation because there's still a remnant of believers who are committed to Him. And so, I always have hope for our future. I always have hope that we can be 
number one, leading the world in good things again. I believe that. Our, our future is not, is, is not bleak. I mean, if we keep going down the same track, we're going to fail and fall apart. But our future is not going to be secured by some political party or, or another war on something. Our, our future, our only hope as a nation is in the saving hand of God. Is in God stepping in to intervene to make a difference in how things are going. And the only way that God is going to step in and make a difference in how things are going is if our country turns around morally. If there is national repentance in our, in our personal lives, in our government, in, in, if we return to the moral law, that foundation that our nation was built on, that God designed us, and so we need to honor God with how we live our lives and run our country. If we return to that, God is going to come in and return all those blessings that we used to have and, and that freedom and that prosperity that we used to know. And we need a Christian revival. And the only people who can kick a Christian revival into gear in this nation is the church. There's no other source. There is no other way for this country to turn around. No politician, no political group, no nobody can make this nation return to the way it was except for the church. Except for God through the church. And, and the problem though is that the church, the American church in general, I'm not just talking this building, I'm talking the church across America has gotten a little too comfortable with the status quo. We've just kind of settled for how things are. The American church in many ways seems perfectly fine with living our own lives and you know worshiping inside the comfort and safety of our own churches the way we want to do and you know in here and letting the rest of the world live how they want to live. You know, you guys do your thing and we're going to do our thing in here and we'll get along fine that way and, and we'll just be happy with the things the way they are. And many churches, many church people don't want to upset the apple cart. They don't want to talk to somebody about their sin because, well, it's not very fun. And I don't want to judge anybody. And, and that's the attitude across much of America. You know, they, they, they don't like the idea of judging sinners in spite of the fact that sinners commit moral atrocities and abominations against God. They don't want to you know, stir things up. You know, they're my friends and we have fun together and I don't want to cause any problem. It's my family and I don't want my family to be mad at me. And a, and a lot of church people seem fine today with being of the world while they're in it. But we're not called to be of the world. We are in it, so we have to be in it, but we're called to be separate from the world even though we're a part of it. Be in the world, but not of it. We live here, but you're supposed to live different. You're supposed to lead the world down a different path. Two weeks ago when I first dug into this topic, and, and by the way, this is a continuation of two weeks ago, we, we talked about money. and we, you know, the, So many people believe that the purpose of Christianity is to benefit you financially. That you, know, you, you go to church and you, you give so that you can get something out of it. Which is just stupid and selfish and it has nothing to do with the bible we are blessed when god blesses us in order to be a blessing to others and we've talked before about how if every person who called themselves a christian actually tithed to the church that the church would be able to solve world problems the church would be able to take care of hunger and famine the church would be able to solve every curable disease that there is people wonder why why god allows so much suffering and death in the world, when they should be asking themselves, why don't we use the resources that God has given us to take care of the suffering and death that we can take care of? Because there's a lot that the church could do if the church would give the way the church is called to give. We talked about Jesus giving His life to save the world, which is a huge deal. Comprehending what Christ did on the cross the, the immensity of that act. The, it's, it's like comprehending eternity. Jesus didn't just die to, to save you and set you up with a nice life to give you, you know, a house and a car and, and a job. And, it, you know, of course, God provides for our needs. But do you think Jesus 
You know, when I think of Jesus, people talk about Jesus dying just for you. It's, it's akin to the entire D-Day invasion happening just to save Private Ryan. I mean, if, if there were, on the first day of D-Day, on the first day of that Normandy invasion, there were 5,000 ships, 5,000 Allied ships that went across. There were 160,000 troops of Allied troops on that first day that threw themselves at those Nazi defenses and were mowed down over 10,000 Allied casualties on day one. 10,000 people were mowed down and, and shot and blown up by, by Nazi fortifications. And in the next couple of months after that first day, over 2 million men would throw themselves into France to, to go up against the Nazis. And over 200,000 of them would die in that offensive. I mean, it's amazing how much resource was thrown into this war to stop Hitler's advance and to, and, and to end his reign. Can you imagine the ridiculousness of making such a sacrifice to save just one person? That millions of people go to fight, hundreds of thousands of people die to save one person. I mean, it's stupid. Nobody would ever do that. And, and, and there are still some allied soldiers alive today who can't forget what they went through because it was so tragic. We've got an allied soldier here who I know you remember what you went through on that ship when he got blown up. I mean, there are people that they, they, you, you can't sleep through the night without having dreams of the tragic events that they suffered, but they can be proud of their sacrifice because they literally changed the world. They ended the reign of, a, of an awful, awful man and his army. And, I mean, who knows what kind of system we'd be living under today if Hitler had been allowed to advance. But they stopped him. And they can be proud of that. And, and that their sacrifice was worth something. Now imagine a sacrifice even more costly. When Jesus went to the cross, it, it, He was the source of every human life that's ever lived. He, he, the, he, and He died. The Creator of every star of every planet, the, the giver of every single life, the perfect and holy and innocent Lamb who, who was slaughtered to take away the sins of the entire world to offer salvation to anybody who wanted it. That one life is worth exceedingly more than every other life that has ever lived combined. That's a big sacrifice. What are we doing with that gift? with that sacrifice that was made for us. You know, in, in, in Saving Private Ryan, if you've ever seen the movie, there's this small group and you know, they, they go through the D-Day invasion and they go to, to save this one guy. It's just a small band of people, but, but pretty much all of them die to get this one guy home. They sacrifice themselves in order to return him back to his mom who's lost her other sons in the war. And at the end, when the leader is dying and... It, and Private Ryan sees him, he pulls him up close, and he says, earn this. Earn it. We've all died to save you. Earn it. Make, it. make this sacrifice worth something. And that's kind of what I think of Jesus. I think we need to earn it. The sacrifice that He has made for us, we need to, you know, obviously we can't Buy it. You can't earn it as if you know you give enough that you'll get something. He gives it free. You know he's already made the sacrifice. He's already offered the gift. But now make it worth something. Show him how valuable it is by how you live your life. And you know you aren't just saved for yourself. We're saved for the glory of God. You know don't let this get out. But Christianity is really just a huge pyramid scheme. We're all working to glorify one guy at the top. We owe Him everything. So everyone that we recruit underneath us, we're all just working to pay back the One who gave us everything. And you know, too often preaching in America is about getting something. You pray a prayer and you get a free ticket to heaven. You put a few bucks in the offering plate and God will fill your bank account. You sing some hymns, try not to fall asleep during the sermon, and maybe volunteer to help with a project at church. And you can consider yourself a good person worthy of a giant mansion that, you know, in heaven with a pool 
and a 70-inch plasma screen TV and, you know, just take it easy and relax because you're going to get lots of good stuff. It's, it's like it's the American dream modified for churches. You work hard enough and you'll wind up at the top. But the real, real faith isn't, it, it, it's not about what we can get out of God. It's about giving God His due. It's about returning to God what He's already given us. It's about honoring Him for who He is and what He's done for the world. I think much, much of the church has become water instead of tea leaves. We're called to be the leaves that change the water. And I think we've become more like the water and we're being changed by the culture around us. Christians are called to go into the world and make the world disciples. But in too many cases, the church has decided just to go along with the world. We can't, you know, we, how many church people do I look at? And they look nothing different. They're exactly like everybody else walking around. We just kind of sprinkle a little Jesus on top to try to cover the stench of spiritual death. We say we love Jesus, but we don't live any differently. But I believe that we can turn things around. I believe we can change all this. I believe we can have victory over sin and evil and death in this country if we're willing to stop trying to make the Bible relevant to our sinful society and instead encourage the people around us to conform their lives to the truth of God. But it will take a paradigm shift for a lot of people. It will take thinking differently as the church. We tend to run into a similar problem that modern politicians do. Every elected leader of this nation is sworn in. They swear an oath to, to the Constitution to, to protect it, to, to keep it, to, to obey it, to, you know, that their job is to abide by the Constitution. And that's how they are supposed to... to operate as an official of the government. Every one of them swears that oath. And then they go about their job in many ways as if the Constitution didn't exist. It's an empty promise. And there are way too many Christians today who are almost exactly the same. They've never even read the Bible. I don't know how many, I don't know how you can believe in something that you don't know anything about. But there are so many people who say that they're Christians, they say they love Jesus, they go to church, and they don't know what His Word says. And and so they claim to be Christians, but their lives and their words are indistinguishable from the unbeliever. You can't tell the difference. Except maybe they go to church once in a while. So when the typical American churchgoer tries to defend the faith, they don't use the authority of God because they don't know it. Instead, they use the world's arguments. They argue the same way everybody else argues. They either they, they either they don't have any good reasons and it's just a feeling or just something that somebody else told them or, or you know, whatever they feel like believing, which isn't helpful to anybody. Or, what we often do, we try to use various scientific proofs and archaeology and, and you know, written historical evidence and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff to validate the, the reality of Jesus. They talk about the historic accuracies of scriptures and, you know, based on thousands, there are thousands of copies of ancient manuscripts of the Bible. And they all say the same thing. You know, they back one another up. There's lots of contextual proof for the Bible and for who Jesus was and that he lived and he died and was resurrected. There's plenty of evidence and, and we use that evidence as our foundation to validate our faith. And so we argue the faith as if human reason is the ultimate authority of truth. And we present our case, and then we let, you know, and the atheist that we're trying to convince hears all that and turns his back on all that evidence, claiming that his enlightened mind is beyond the trappings of truth. He doesn't have to listen to us, he can make up his own mind. And scripture calls that person a fool. Yet we treat them like they're the judge, and, and sharing all that information only to have it completely ignored is like throwing pearls to pigs. And you know that there's a favorite Bible verse among sinners these days, and it's judge not lest ye be judged. You've probably heard it quite a few times. If you skip down just a, a, like a few more verses, Jesus says this. In, he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before pigs. Otherwise, they will trample them under feet and turn around to tear you to pieces. If that's not a picture of our world today, when we're presenting all this evidence and they say, 
doesn't matter, it doesn't important, it's not valid, I don't believe it. And I don't believe in God, and I'm going to keep living my life my own way. That's what Jesus was talking about. And when you go through the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, you never see the prophets or the apostles or Jesus trying to argue their faith based on the latest scientific research or, or of the time or, you know, or human reasoning. Instead, they rely completely on the anointing and authority and the reliability of God Himself. They say, God said it, I believe it. And that's all there is to it. It's God is God. We all know He's God. You know He's God, even though you claim He's not. And you know what we're called to live, and, and I'm just telling you the truth. And that's how they, you know, they just said, point blank, this is God's Word. You live it or you die. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starts off like this. It says, when I came to you, this is Paul, it says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God, for I decided... Not like Paul was a stupid guy. Paul was an extremely intelligent man. But he said, I decided to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My conversation and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. So Paul, even though he was a wise, smart, powerful man, said, I'm not going to come in with, with arguments. I'm going to come in with the power of God. And I'm just going to come in here. I'm going to show you how God uses a man to preach His Gospel. I'm not going to come here and, and pretend like I know it all. I'm going to come in here and show you that I belong to the, the Master of the universe. And let Him show you. And all that historical and scientific evidence is great. I mean, all the things, the facts and the figures and the history and, and the math, and I mean, those are wonderful tools that we can use for people who are truly seeking the truth. If someone really is looking for answers and wants to know the truth, if you want to know more about your faith and, and, and why it's such a good faith, you know, you're, God welcome, He wants us to test everything. You test everything. Check it out for yourself. Make sure it comports with the truth. He challenges us to know information. And to you know, not be stupid, not be ignorant. But sinners don't want the truth. They scatter from the light of truth like cockroaches. In Psalm 14, it starts off like this. It says, Fools say to themselves, there is no God. They sin and commit evil deeds. None of them does what is right. And the Lord looks down from heaven at the human race to see if there is anyone who is wise and seeks God Everyone rejects God. They are all morally corrupt. None of them does what is right. Not even one. So it's, you know, people who have come to the light of Scripture and said, I, I realize I need to turn my life around. I need to submit my life to God's will and start living for Him. And God gives wisdom and blesses those people with the ability to understand, to have knowledge. And we're called to, to grow our knowledge and to be smart people and to be intelligent people and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. But the people who don't belong to God are not seeking that information. And it says so right there. The people who, the, the people who say there is no God, they don't want it. And they're just going to reject it. So all the evidence in the world isn't going to change them. What needs to change them is God breaking their hearts so that they understand that they're going to die without Him. And and in uh, the the authority of God is so much bigger than human authority. You know, all the evidence that we can get him doesn't count for squat. I mean, it's real evidence; it's good stuff, but it doesn't mean anything apart from God's authority. Hebrews chapter two starts off like this: "Is therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message is spoken, if the message spoken through the angels." proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received its just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? For it was first communicated through the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, while God confirmed their witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. You know, faith in God is 
it's the most rational, reasonable faith in the world because it comports with reality. It's, you know, there's only one God, only one real God, and this is His world, and, and these are, you know, our lives belong to Him. And so when we go along with true faith, with believing in Him and submitting our will to Him, you know, everything that we believe in comports with reality. Everything in Scripture comports with reality because it is real. So it does make real sense. And so our faith is reasonable. It's not a blind faith. There's, there's evidence behind There's plenty. There's more than enough evidence to back up the things that we believe in. But if the foundation of your faith is nothing but human reason, then the first person who has more knowledge than you can talk you out of believing in Jesus. You know, if, you're, if your faith is based on just knowledge of the facts, then somebody else who knows more facts is going to talk you out of it. Your faith has to be based on a relationship with God. It has to be based on Jesus Christ Himself, on the power of God, His Holy Spirit, working according to His will. And that's what it says. Is we, can, we confirmed the words that were spoken with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that it was God at work that confirmed the things that people said. And God said, check it out. Test things. Faith is, it, Proverbs 9.10 says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And acknowledging the Holy One is understanding. So you turn to God and you say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm ready to do it your way instead of mine. And that's the first step in the, in the direction of wisdom and understanding. Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to share the truth with others, you've got to go to the source of wisdom. If you want to be able to share truth, do it like Jesus did. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with clever speech, so that the cross of Christ would not become useless. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. Where is the wise man? Where is the expert of Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, made the, has God not made the wisdom of this world foolish? For since the, in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. For Jews demanded miraculous signs and the Greeks asked for wisdom. But we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And what that basically says is that Paul went out preaching. And some people wanted him to show them evidence, you know, whether it's miracles and tricks and you know, things that he could do. Other people wanted him to argue the facts and figures and show them the evidence of, of you know, documented proof sort of thing. And he said, ultimately, none of them really wanted to know God. They just wanted to argue. They just wanted to talk about human wisdom. They wanted to be the judge of God, to have Paul show them miracles or, or information or whatever, and they get to decide whether they should honor God or not. And Paul says, no, I'm not playing that game. God needs your, deserves your honor. You owe Him the honor. And I'm not going to go through a bunch of tricks and, and jump through a bunch of hoops and try to spend all my time arguing information that you're not going to accept anyway. Because it's not your human reasoning that decides whether God is real or not. God is real. You just would get to accept it or wind up in hell someday. And, and so he didn't argue according to human wisdom, but according to God's wisdom. And he just preached the Gospel and, and demonstrated the Holy Spirit to people who were willing to receive. And God was shown strong that His weakness is greater than human strength. And I think part of the problem might be that a lot of people look at church the same way they see the food quartered at a mall. They, you know, they want a place that will provide whatever flavor they're in the mood for. And, and some, you know, they want, 
the right kind of music. They want the right kind of atmosphere. They want a friendly service. They want a nice motivational speech before the game starts. They want free child care you know, while they're there enjoying the show. But Jesus didn't start the church so that we could have a show on Sundays. He didn't start the church to entertain us once a week. He gave everyone in the church, every person who's a part of the body of Christ, gets a gift from the Holy Spirit, gets a talent, or some multiple talents. God blesses people so that they can go out and change the world as a team. And and that's what the, that's that's why we come together as a church. Ephesians four at verse twelve says, "This is why God gave everyone various gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is to build up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature." So God gives us gifts to equip us to come together in unity and to mature in Christ and so that all of us become just like Jesus. To be, to live our lives like Jesus lived. And that's what the church is for. We don't go to church to be fed like we're pigs in a trough. The church is not a spiritual restaurant. The church is a spiritual locker room. We come here to put on our uniforms so we can go out and do the job we've been called to do. You get fed by digging into the Word and putting it into action, just like Jesus. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. That's how I get fed. I do what God tells me to do. We need to get away from the entertainment attitude that we're so used to. I mean, that's our culture. We're, we're an entertainment culture. Hollywood runs the nation. And, and we need to get into an engagement culture because regardless of what, no matter what a church service is like, whatever the music is like or the sermon or the Sunday school, it's our relationship with God that ought to be our motivator to go out and, and do the work of winning souls for Him. You shouldn't have to go to church to worship God. You should be worshiping God with your life 24 hours a day. No matter where you're at, you should be worshiping God with what you do and how you live. You go to church in order to coordinate with the rest of the body, the body of Christ, in order to build His kingdom as a team. That's why we come to church. You never see Jesus or the disciples in some building holding a healing service. You never see Jesus you know, putting on a Christmas program. They were out in the streets. They were preaching and healing and performing miracles. And, and, and the people who went to church just to go through the motions, they were struck dead by the Holy Spirit. The people who came to church because they felt like that's what they should do and said, you know, we'll give you some money and, and we'll pretend like we're all good people. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They... They were free to do whatever they wanted. They had a piece of property and they decided they were going to sell it. And they wanted to give some of it to the church. And they were free to give however much they wanted. They could give it all. They could give 10%. It was up to them. It was their property. And they came and they only gave part of it. And they told the church that they were given all of it. They were putting on a show. And they were struck down dead by God. If they'd have given a dollar and said, we just want to give you a dollar, it would have been fine. Because they weren't trying to put on a show and lie to the church and lie to the Holy Spirit. God doesn't want us to come here and put on a show. God wants us to come here and be equipped as saints to go out and do His work. He wants a real relationship. We need to get away from this. Uh, everybody has their own personal interpretation of Scripture these days. You know, This is what I believe. This is what I think Jesus is like. Even though they don't even know the Bible, they still have an attitude of who Jesus is and what He's like. And I, I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, I just got a new word from the Lord. I've heard preachers do that so many times. I just got a new revelation from God. You know, I've got a word from the Lord, and it's not new. It's the same solid, unchanging truth that has been around for millennia, guiding people's lives. That's the word of the Lord. And it's, it's, you know, this unique interpretation thing has taken various churches down the road to, to hiring homosexual pastors and, and, preaching universalism and saying it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter what you believe, we're all going to heaven one day, so this doesn't even matter. I mean, that's what churches go to when they start having their own unique interpretation of Scripture. So, so that's a lot of bad news. I, I'm going to wrap this up. But the, you know, the downside of, of straining Scripture through the filter of our culture is all this stuff that I've been talking about. Things go bad. And churches fall apart. And... and Preachers do terrible things. They get caught committing adultery and sleeping around with, with 
whoever, having terrible relationships, which, which hurts the church because all the people who are supposed to be following him think, well, if he can do it, why can't I do it? And, and, and the, so the whole, there's so many people in the American church that just, you can't tell the difference between them and the world. That's the bad side. On the bright side, the true church, the real church, the, the, is the body of Christ. Everyone who belongs to Jesus is a part of His body. And, and, and that means Jesus is the head. Everyone who really has given their lives to God and has been transformed by Him, we're all a part of the same body. We're all different members. We have different talents, but we work together. And Jesus Christ is our head. So the builder of the church has not changed. He's the same builder, the same head of the church. Since you know Peter and James and John were the first part of the church, we've got the same head that they had. The same Jesus Christ is leading us. And, and Jesus grew the church with a handful of men. He had 12 disciples and one of them went astray and they voted in another and wound up with, with a dozen guys. And that dozen guys built an institution that affected the whole world. Turned the world upside down in the midst of persecution. And today, in this country, there are way more than a dozen faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the American church has problems, but it also has a lot of people who are, are at work to build the kingdom. There are a lot of people who have committed their lives to, to obeying God and to reaching out to others and to preaching the gospel and, and people who are serving the poor and the broken and doing everything that they can to to do what God has called them to do because of what He's done for them. So all we have to do, if we want to see this nation turned around, is to keep serving the Lord. I mean, we have to serve Him 100%. But if we serve the Lord, He will keep working in us and through us and strengthen His body. If we unite with fellow believers across the nation and around the world who also are sold out to Jesus, who are 100% committed to doing what He's called us to do, God will do His work through us. Ultimately, the church belongs to the Lord. And, and, and it's His Holy Spirit who directs and empowers every member. So ultimately, we don't have to worry about it because it's God's thing. It's a, we are God's. And so we trust in Him. We trust in Jesus Christ and we use the gifts that He's given us to play our part. And Christ, as our head, directs every single part. And if we're all committed to Jesus and working with Him, He's going to unify us and He's going to build us up so that we're all matured and, and become like Him and, and working in unison to carry out His perfect will. So here's your challenge. This is what I'll end with. If you have been saved by God, if Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and transformed your life because you've repented and you've committed yourself to Him 100%, we are foreigners in this land. We're documented immigrants in America. How much do you care about what happens in Mexico or in Holland or in Greece or wherever else around the world? You know, you hear the news and maybe you think about it and maybe it matters to you. Okay, how much more do you care about what happens in the U.S.? A lot more, hopefully. You care more about what happens in your own country than in foreign countries. You should be that much more interested in the kingdom of God in investing your life in the work of God because we're foreigners in this land. So we should be more concerned about God's kingdom than about America. We should be more concerned about America than Mexico. But we should be that much more concerned about our eternal home that we're going to be a part of forever. So you commit, you invest your life in the work of the Lord and you can't go wrong. You make your commitment 100% to God's kingdom and things are going to work out. We're all called to make this world, this nation, this town a better place. You know, we don't just we don't just sit around and wait for God to do something. We're called to to be at work to help people who who need help, to preach the gospel, to make disciples. So we make this place a better place while we're here. And and we do that by obeying God, by making disciples, by serving the poor and the widows and the orphans. We we grow the church and we bring this world more in line with God's will, just like the founders did. They said if we create a nation that is in the line with the will of God, it's going to be a good nation. And so if we do our work to bring the people around us into the will of God, 
to bring our elected leaders into the will of God, this nation will be blessed. And we're working to grow the kingdom, not just this country. After all, our Creator knows better than anybody how life can be lived to get the most out of it, to get the best. And, and, and that was the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples. Remember, He said, God's kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want what God wants and that's what will make this world a better place. America might not be the same kind of Christian nation that it was in the beginning. The president might have had a little bit of accuracy in what he said. I think he was wrong in the, in the, in the ultimate meaning of his statement. But yeah, we are much different than the way we were when we started. And we need to go back to the way we were when we were started. And there are still Christians in this nation. Quite a few of them. Plenty enough. If there was one, Jesus could use them. And there's way more than that. And Jesus can use us if we commit ourselves to Him to do His work. And with the power of God, we can change this world. So let's pray to do that. God, we thank You so much that You work in us. That You work by Your power and Your knowledge and Your wisdom and Your glory and that we don't have to trust in our own power and our own strength and our own wisdom. That You help us to become strong and You help to grow our character and You help to grow our knowledge and You give us wisdom so that we can be more and more like You every single day and that our ultimate goal is to be just like You, to have Your kind of character, to have Your kind of love, to have Your kind of commitment. And we pray that You would continue to do that in us, Lord, and help us to serve You well. Help us to remember where we're going. Help us to remember where our commitment should lie and to live our lives out for You and to preach the Gospel and to reach out to others to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love You with our hearts and our minds and our strength. God, help us to do that. Thank You for loving us so much. Help us to love You back. In Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.